You are listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 26th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. North Korea, helpful as ever, supplies arms to Russia. The new Speaker of the US House of Representatives, as of this broadcast. And how to make Dan Brown readable. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Carol Walker and John Everard, will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by John Everard, former British ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea, and by Carol Walker, political commentator and Times radio presenter. Hello to you both. Hello. Yeah. hello. Good evening. Uh, Carol, you are relatively recently returned from a country which regular listeners will be wearily aware is one of my very favourite places to visit. Yeah, Albania was wonderful. Uh, I hadn't been before. Uh, we went... Uh, purely on holiday and uh, it was a it was a terrific experience i think for anyone who maybe has read some of the stories about you know criminal gangs and people trafficking the people are absolutely delightful um the capital is fantastically vibrant buzzing great food lovely mountains Lovely beaches, dead cheap, fantastic food. I mean, what more can I say? People genuinely often think still that I'm joking when I earnestly recommend a city break in Tirana, whose mayor, Arion Veliaj, has been a repeat guest uh, on Monocle Radio, or indeed visiting Albania more generally. But I am am absolutely serious. It is, as you have discovered, a delightful place to visit. And it has a fascinating history, because, of course, it was one of the uh, last places in Eastern Europe to be freed from the communist Mm -hmm. yoke. And and even during and during the communist era, one of the most isolated of all. And the people that you talk to, as we did in Tirana, I went to one of those walking tours, just absolutely fascinating, their memories and descriptions mm. of everything that went on there. No, it's an extraordinary place. As you correctly point out, it was basically John North Korea on the Adriatic for uh, quite a lot of the 20th century. And the transformation since then is extraordinary. I want to make it clear we're, we're not actually being sponsored by the Albanian tourist authority, at least not yet. Um, John, uh, you have been cycling again. I've been cycling again. I actually went to another place where the people are really, really friendly, (laughs) beautiful beaches, and it's really cheap. Uh, Sunny Liverpool, um, a bit closer to home, and I can't claim to have been anywhere as exotic and exciting as Albania. Uh, But it was a great trip. I was was lecturing there at one of the universities. Uh, Liverpool's a a place that always fascinates me. Uh, You've got this wonderful, completely restored centre. You Walk 200 metres away and you are on unreconstructed slums, deep deprivation and really quite, quite grotty. It's a, it's a buzzing city with so, so much going for it, but so many challenges at the same time and great people. How long does it take to cycle there from where you started out? Three days. Three days of how many hours a time? Oh, it varied. Um, the first day I set off at about seven, got in about six, so that was like 11 hours. Uh, the next day was 12 hours and the third day was a 
again, about 11 hours cycling. That, that is quite a schlep. Is, do you find the United Kingdom, because regular listeners will know you do this quite a lot, do you find it uh, an actually fairly agreeable situation for long-haul cycling? Absolutely. I, I mean, not only are people generally okay about cyclists, I mean, you, you get horror stories, but, but mo, 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 I, I encounter courtesy and consideration much more often than I encounter aggression. But also... <laughs> well, I cycle in London. I'm not sure I quite... Mm, so do maybe I. London is the exception that proves so so do all. I. Maybe it's the flashing smile. Who knows? <laughs> but but also the UK is crisscrossed by by cycle paths well away from any motor traffic, which makes cycling a delight. That's a great piece of cycle. Well, we will start properly in one of John's former bailiwicks, and it has long been known that North Korea maintains a sizable domestic defence industry. It has been less certain whether any of their kit actually works. We may be finding out due to the drying up of manufacturers willing to supply Russia anymore. South Korea, Japan and the United States have issued an understandably miffed joint statement condemning several deliveries of North Korean arms to Russia, for which Russia is believed to be paying in transfer of technology and expertise as well as cash. Um, John, there's apparently about a thousand containers worth of stuff has already been sent. That's according to the UK's Ministry of Defence. What do you reckon is likely in those thousand containers? The US Department of Defense has said it suspects a variety of missions, rockets and shells. But can we put this in perspective? A thousand mm. containers, like I say, assuming they're the big 44 containers, uh, they would carry roughly 500 shells each, if you assume that they're similar to the, to the 155. The Russians will plow through this in a morning. Not quite a morning, but mm. half a million rounds at 20,000 rounds a day on a slow day, 60,000 rounds a day right now because they're trying to take Avdika. Uh, eight days of hard bombardment, maybe 20 of ordinary running. This is not going to change the war. And although, as you said, North Korea does have a manufacturing capacity, it won't be anything like enough to keep the Russians supplied on a regular basis, even if some of their shells do occasionally work. Well, just to follow that up quickly, John, because that is a pretty fundamental question, and you're probably as well placed to answer it as anybody. Is North Korean kit actually any good at all? No, is a quick answer. <laughs> uh, the, uh, th- especially uh, North Korean munitions taken from storage. If you keep a shell in storage for any length of time, you need to give it a certain amount of tender loving care, and in particular, you need to keep the fuses clean. Now, it, North Korea being North Korea, it's a racing certainty that all the money allocated for that maintenance will have been stolen. And it was noticeable that when the first consignment arrived uh, on the front, uh, back in February, there was a separate arrangement at mm. the time, the Ukrainians were saying that all of a sudden, all these shells the Russians were firing at them were just going plop into the mud. They weren't going off. And I would lay money that those were North Korean shells. Well, looked at it that way, Carol, it is actually, in fact, outstandingly good news that the North Koreans are supplying the Russians. But you, you can't look at this story really and think that this is an indication that things are going well for Russia. No, indeed. And I think that uh, anyone looking at the war there will think that any boost to Russian supplies is not a good thing, though perhaps if they're quite as bad as John describes, um, it's less of a concern. But I think that we should be aware of the context of this, which is that it comes at a time that Ukraine is very worried indeed mm. that most of its or many of its closest allies have now had their focus distracted by the appalling conflict between Israel and Hamas. Uh, and this at a time that there were already signs of some 
uh, war weariness in some uh, European countries. Uh, President Zelensky has been addressing EU leaders today. Uh, And I think that Ukraine is concerned that given the amount of time that the war has ground on, the fact that the long-awaited counteroffensive didn't make the significant changes that some had hoped for, I think any sign that Russia's getting any supplies and any backing from anywhere will be an additional concern. Uh, Yes, all all that is true, and uh, I understand Zelensky's concern, but it cuts both ways, that with what's going on in the Middle East, I suspect that Iranian supplies of arms, and particularly the drones that have been so useful to the Russians, to Russia, will start to shrivel. They need to keep Hezbollah and Hamas well supplied. They risk losing one, possibly both, of their major strategic assets. I suspect that Russia is just as worried as the Europeans are. Uh, John, is the real worry here, then, at least? least as far as Japan, South Korea and the United States are concerned, not so much that North Korea is flogging containers full of dud munitions to the Russians, but what the Russians might return to the North Koreans in terms of expertise and technology. Yes, absolutely. The South Koreans have put out a lengthy, detailed and passionate statement to this effect. They are very worried that Russia might transfer either missile or nuclear technology to North Korea, or indeed supply it with advanced fighter jets. Uh, You remember that when Kim Jong-un went to Russia, he was allowed to crawl all over a very advanced aircraft in one of their smartest aircraft factories. Now, this is a fear. There's no real evidence that the Russians are doing this. And there are good reasons why the Russians wouldn't. Uh, firstly, uh, the, they know that they can supply North Korea with grain and oil, which is politically relatively harmless, uh, and that will keep them quiet for the time being. They know, too, that once they have sucked North Korea dry of its stockpiles of munitions, North Korea is no further use to Russia, and they can let it drop. Why uh, proliferate valuable technology in that kind of situation? They'll keep them trolling along like a donkey trying to chase a carrot and then drop them. Well, let's move along uh, somewhat and to the United States, where the music in the House of Representatives appears to have been switched off. And sitting down in the Speaker's chair is Mike Johnson, a sixth-year congressman from Louisiana. To understate matters wildly, Johnson radiates little of the Bacchanalian libertarianism often associated with his home state. He is a fire and brimstone conservative, and to make matters even more amusing, is among that cohort of Republicans who believe or pretend to that Donald Donald Trump was the rightful winner of the 2020 presidential election, which, just to be clear, he wasn't. He lost like a big loser. Um, Carol, this does sound like quite the resume for somebody who will not only be a powerful figure in their own right, but lest we forget, second in line to the presidency, the Speaker of the House in the event of some huge calamity. Yeah, and a pretty young and inexperienced figure mm. in that role as well. As you say, uh, he's a, a Trump-loving uh, right-winger. He uh, he actually helped to craft, uh, as I understand it, part of the legal case for claiming that Trump had won the last election when he'd lost. Uh, and although Trump stopped short of actually endorsing him, he seems pretty happy uh, that uh, Mike Johnson is now in that role. I think one of the big issues which ties into what we were 
just been talking about is this question of the funding for Ukraine, because as we know, there was a there was a stitch up deal to get the budget through um, when we were about three previous speakers uh, or -hmm. three previous candidates for speaker ago Um, that left out this question of further military support and the huge amount of funds that need to be committed um, to that. Um, So that still has to be got through. Uh, Mike Johnson somebody who has voted twice against giving further funds to Ukraine, although he initially supported um, a package of support. And he's recently tweeted that the American taxpayers have sent over 100 billion in aid to Ukraine in the last year. They deserve to know if the Ukrainian government is being entirely forthcoming and transparent about the use of this massive sum of taxpayer resources. So one of the crucial things that Joe Biden wants to get through is another 108 billion pounds uh, of funding for supplies to both Ukraine and to Israel. And what role exactly Mike Johnson will play in ensuring that the necessary legislation gets through? Well, it certainly puts a question mark over Biden's ability to get those funds through. Uh, Just to follow that up, Carol, and this is the inevitable follow-up, that assuming he is still in a job, or at least still in this job next November, um, the way things have been in the House of Representatives, it would be unwise to assume he will still be in this job by the end of this programme. But if he is still in a job... As the votes are being counted, is he potentially actually quite a dangerous figure? Uh, He is a potentially dangerous figure, but I also think that he is being seen by many uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill as uh, somebody who's going to be prepared to do deals. He apparently, there was a huge amount of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes for him to get that role of speaker when um, the previous uh, three candidates came and went in rapid succession. So I think the question is whether somebody as inexperienced as he is can be swung in particular um, by somebody like Donald Trump and his close acolytes, um, who, of course, is um, the, the way, way out in, uh, in front in the uh, stakes as the person most likely to get the Republican nomination. Uh, John, there are a couple of possible interpretations. In fact, there's several possible interpretations of the behaviour of the Republican Party in recent weeks. But let's just boil it down to two of them. Which do you think is the most likely, that this is the end point of a meticulously excogitated cunningly planned strategy to install a proper headbanger in the Speaker's chair a year or so out from the election? Or are these people basically just ferrets in a sack who have absolutely no idea what they're doing and this sort of chaos is the inevitable end result of that? Much more the second than the first, not least because the first would suppose that someone like uh, Jim Jordan uh, was prepared to to, to play along uh, in a process that's going to get somebody else elected. That's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, but in, not just ferrets and sack, I, I think also that sheer exhaustion kicked in. I mean, the, the Republicans know that they've made complete fools of themselves, both in front of the American nation and indeed in front of the world. And they were getting a bit desperate. Uh, They were also getting very, very tired. You forget that in these processes, uh, you get long, late night sittings, people getting very bad temper with each other. And I suspect a lot of them, remember, there's a lot of very elderly people among their ranks, just felt enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The more sinister other ramifications, um, Carol, 
I mean, it, it's it's tied into where the Republican Party now thinks it's going, assuming it does manage to get a president back in the White House next year. Does this foreshadow, given Mike Johnson's well-documented form on these fronts, uh, further assaults on things like abortion rights and gay rights in particular? He is not a fan of either of those things. Well, I think uh, there's now a question, isn't there, of whether either of those or any of those issues will actually come to a legislative process in the little time Mm. that we've got left of this presidency. But it it will be interesting if it does, because the Democrats actually feel that if it comes to question of abortion rights and so on, that if that is a big issue, that that could help them get Mm. Democratic votes out. And if Biden is being seen to be blocked by uh, a right-wing caucus uh, on Capitol Hill, whether that could actually actually play to the Democrats' advantage. Um, So I I think there are so many ways in which he could end up um, being a crucial player, not least, as you mentioned, um, the fact that he is now um, second in line to the presidency, um, Kamala Harris, um, should anything happen to Joe Biden, and I don't want to bring in the big questions about his age, but I mean, he is getting on, um, but he is then um, the next in line to the presidency. So the way that somebody as inexperienced as this, who is also uh, extremely right-wing when it comes to questions of birth control, abortion rights, um, funding for Ukraine, and a whole host of other issues, and of course somebody who is such a close ally of Donald Trump's in that position, um, given the uncertainties that we've seen about the development of US politics, um, there could be all sorts of ways in which he could become quite a significant figure. Uh, John, just finally on this, an an amount of, well, not wild speculation, but tempered speculation on the subject of elderly presidential candidates. This has not been a great week in a number of respects for Donald Trump. Uh, He has been fined $10,000 for violating a gag order in one trial, the civil fraud trial in New York. Uh, His fourth lawyer, I think we're up to now in Georgia, has flipped on him in the election balking case there. And it has emerged that his actual White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, appears to have grasped him up to a federal grand jury in return for immunity uh, from prosecution. I know that none of us sitting at this table are American lawyers, but it's not looking too clever for him, is it? No, it's not. Uh, I I think the chances of any one of these legal proceedings uh, putting him behind bars or seriously inconveniencing him are not particularly high. But the chances that none of them do is actually quite low. That you know, just on the law of averages, uh, one of them is is likely to cause him real problems. Also, there's, we're seeing a steady drip drip of negative publicity. Now, mm. there's a hard core of Trump supporters that will vote for him no matter what. I mean, it's almost like a cult. But as all this bad news comes out, and as testimony after testimony uh, points up uh, all the kinds of uh, bad things that Trump has been doing, I suspect that centrist Republicans will start to ease away. Not that they're going to rush out and vote Democrat, but that they may well simply stay away from the elections. And it was interesting that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, clearly uh, somebody who's um, not that close politically, um, but, but from the same uh, party as, as uh, Donald Trump, said that all today, that or yesterday, today that although 
he does seem to be on course to get the Republican nomination and these court cases don't seem to be harming his chances there, they are undermining the, his prospects of actually ever winning an election and getting back into the White House. Yeah. It, it is quite something when an Austrian artist obsessed with the physical human ideal is a relative voice of political reason. Uh, but moving along from the Republican Party, but sticking with the subject of pestilential irritants, listeners may recall the recent Paris bedbug panic. This had all the makings of a classic British media silly season story, a potent folk bogeyman, or bogey insect, an absence of need for actual sourcing, an excuse to make fun of the French. But in France it was taken seriously with senior ministers recalled from lunch to attend emergency meetings and preventive measures duly implemented. Now, however, French intelligence services are reportedly investigating the possibility that this was all, in fact, a Russian psyops scam. Not so much bedbugs as redbugs. Thank you. I worked on that all afternoon. Um, John, first of all, I, I am... No fan of Russia or its machinations, as regular listeners will be aware. Nonetheless, I, I would be delighted to discover that the Paris bedbugs panic was, in fact, a, a Russian intelligence operation. Does this strike you as the kind of thing intelligence services such as Russia's would be getting up to? Yes, it does. Amazing. Um, the, uh, I mean, I don't know whether they invented the story from whole cloth. They, they might have done. I think it's probably more like Whole cloth is a poor choice of words in the circumstances. <laughs> yes, isn't it? But, OK. Uh, but but it's, I think it's more likely that they saw the bedbug story, probably somewhere fairly obscure, saw an opportunity and just bigged it up. Uh, we the, the, Some of the stories have been traced back uh, to doppelganger stories in newspapers who deny they ever published them, so false sourcing, uh, typical Russian techniques, uh, which we have uh, uh, seen time and time and time again. Uh, remember that uh, it was the Russians who, in, who, who described uh, Margaret Thatcher as the Iron Lady originally. Um, they, they put out this story, uh, hoping to bring her down, and were horrified, and the whole thing backfired. Finally, <laughs> for the Russians, of all people, to accuse other people of having bedbug infestation, <laughs> for heaven's sake. Uh, yeah, well, I, no, I, I, I was going to wonder out loud... Uh, Carol, how the DGSE could strike back, um, what panic the French intelligence services could try to sow in Russia. But yeah, I, I had already thought of that, John, that bedbugs will hold no fear for anybody who's ever attempted to sleep in a Russian hotel. Uh, no, indeed. And uh, when I, I did most of my travelling in um, Russia a good few years ago, when, um, yeah, a bedbug would probably be the, the some of the least of your worries. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated um, that John, who's much closer to... Uh, uh, the way the Russian intelligence operates than I am uh, does think it's highly plausible. I always looked at these look at these things and I think, oh come on, maybe it's uh, just the French desperately trying to um, push the blame elsewhere, try and salvage a bit of reputation. Say, well, you know, the French, you know, we're not really going to have a problem with bed bugs. But then every time you think. There can't be uh, Russian bots that are really behind this. You actually look closely and you think, well, actually, they probably were. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised in a way that um, John uh, clearly thinks that they were behind it. But it, it is really a bit of a relief, isn't it? Because if you're planning to go to Paris anytime soon, you know, obviously the problem's not half as bad as we thought. It, it led us to wonder upstairs, John, when we were discussing the show earlier today, what else might actually uh, the be... the bedbug conversation. <laughs> but, 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 daily that one comes up. But no, but yes. we were wondering what else 
might actually be Russian intelligence operations. I, I am now in my head starting to suspect people on crowded streets with unnecessarily large umbrellas, uh, pretty much all delivery riders, uh, those people who sit on the tube and play audio out loud on their phones, just all those pointless pestilential irritants which cumulatively make life disagreeable, unpleasant and stress out the people of the decadent West. Are they all working for the GRU? All those people, you finally cracked it. All <laughs> London taxi drivers, most London HGV drivers, uh, all dog owners with excessively long leads. Yes, all these people, clear GRU plants. It would explain a lot. Uh, just finally on this one, Carol, and I, I, I did want to ask you about this as a, a participant in the British media of distinguished years of standing. Um, were you swayed by the bedbug panic yourself or did you see this for Silly Season Space Filler? Um, I think I've just done enough travelling in my life in places that are slightly dodgy, um, where the risks are higher than maybe getting bitten by bedbugs. Uh, <laughs> and, and with, you know, great relief, I knew I was going to Albania rather than Paris. So it didn't put me off travelling. I don't think it would actually stop me from travelling, but maybe if I did, I might just, you know, give the sheets an extra shake if I was um, planning a few days uh, uh, across the other side of the channel. Well, let's move along to matters literary, and by definition, almost anything one does to Dan Brown's novel The Da Vinci Code will improve it, not excluding feeding it to a goat. It is a terrible and stupid book filled with sentences like, this is a genuine example, as a boy Langdon had fallen down an abandoned well shaft and almost died treading water in the narrow space for hours before being rescued. Since then he'd suffered a haunting phobia of enclosed spaces, elevators, subways, Squash courts. I, th I think about the addition of squash courts there, not going to lie, quite a lot. However, the artist David Shrigley has lit upon a loftier ideal of turning Brown's drivel into an actual literary classic. He has pulped 6,000 copies of The Da Vinci Code and turned them into editions of George Orwell's 1984. Um, before we plough into this artwork, does anybody here want to get into the whole guilty pleasure thing and attempt to make a case for Dan Brown? Do we have a secret admirer of Dan Brown at the table? I'm not a secret admirer of Dan ah, Brown, but I, I think what I would say is uh, as somebody who um, only in recent years um, managed to write and publish um, my first book. Uh, I Would you have, like to mention the title, Carol, uh, okay, while we're here? Lobby Life Inside <laughs> Westminster Secret Society for anyone who's interested in the machinations between politicians in, and in, the in media all, in, at Westminster. In all good stores, uh, ideal Christmas gift. Elliot and Thompson. Um, it, it, that I... I I feel that anybody um, who has written uh, just the sheer number of novels that Dan Brown has churned out um, has a, a certain amount of admiration um, from me. And, and so I would have sympathy with anyone um, who finds that their books, um, their, the work which they've obviously sweated long and hard over um, has been pulped. Um, but having said that, I do think the idea of um, this artist who talked in such wonderful terms about the alchemy of transforming these unwanted books into 1984. I did think it was a rather wonderful idea. I mean, I, I speak as somebody, and I, listeners, I am not lying to you. Literally just today, I received a six-monthly royalty statement for the UK edition of one of my books, £4.76. So I am actually quite bitter. Uh, and you when, can plug your book as well, yeah, Andrew, yeah, yeah, since well, I've had a chance. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's all on the website, folks. So I, I, I am quite bitter, uh, John, at the moment about the success 
success that Dan Brown has had by writing this nonsense. Uh, the, the idea originates uh, in the story of an Oxfam shop in Swansea, which put up signs saying, please, please don't drop off any more copies of the Da Vinci Code. Um, do we now think better or worse for Swansea for that, i.e. that their charity shop is turning the Da Vinci Code away or that so many people in Swansea have bought the Da Vinci Code that that sign was necessary? No, I think we think better of Swansea. Firstly, they were honest about the problem. And secondly, that the good citizens of Swansea, rather than just throw the Da Vinci Code in the bin, have taken the trouble to take it around to the local charity shop. I think that was a noble civic gesture. But you know, the thing about this whole affair that fascinates me is that for the first time, we know that you pulp 6,000 copies of the Da Vinci Code and you get 1,200 copies of 1984, which at last gives us an exchange rate. 1984 <laughs> is worth five Da Vinci Codes. Well, a whole new metric for students of English. 1984 in this instance is worth rather more than that. Uh, the reason for the disparity, I think, and I'm not an expert in, in pulping, if that is the technical term, is that the 1984 editions produced by this artist are quite large and quite fancy in a limited edition at, admittedly, with a signed artwork accompanying them, 495 quid a go. Um, are either of us tempted at that price? No. Probably not tempted, but what I am intrigued by is the fact that this is not just a work of performative art. It's also an idea about what you should do with all those um, shelves of novels that you have read, some of which you may have really appreciated. Or unsold copies of my books. Is, uh, this, is well, this what you're saying? My husband in particular is an <laughs> avid reader and um, we have this perennial problem. Of what send do you him do to my with website. these books? Do you just take a whole shelf full of... Do you put take all the novels of one author and take them to the charity shop? Should you give them away to somebody? What do you, I mean, it, it is a difficult question about... What you do with all the books that you accumulate in your life. Absolutely. One of the extraordinary facts that, that came to light as part of this story is that large parts of the M6 motorway are covered with 45,000 pulp copies of mostly uh, discarded romances. They found that the fibres <laughs> held the asphalt together. So you're literally driving of a fiction. Uh, one of the other things that emerges from this story, and I, I will discuss, I'll put this both to you finally, is that the new, this new edition of 1984 is possible because... It is 70 years since George Orwell died, uh, which means that his works are out of copyright. People can now do whatever the hell they like with them. Uh, as of this year, that is also uh, true of Dylan Thomas and Eugene O'Neill. Um, I just want to ask you each in turn, I'll start with you, Carol. Are, are we basically fans of this idea? Because it, it's not without its perils, and people who heard last week's What We Learned monologue um, will be familiar with the story of the uh, Florida elementary school teacher who played her kids a Winnie the Pooh film and then went off to do like other teacher stuff not realising that it was a relatively recent production uh, which recast the roly-poly children's favourite as a serial murderer which you can now do um, well uh, clearly there are I, I think there are risks and I think I would go back to the original point I was making of anyone trying to um, take on and, and claim credit for someone else's original work of uh, literary endeavour. So I guess there are some uh, the risks there. But clearly this was done 
in in a spirit of appreciation of of 1984 as one of the. <laughs> You're going to say the spirit of appreciation of Winnie the Pooh there. No, but no, no. I was talking about going back to the to to the to the um the changing of the of the the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code into 1984. Um, but this was done in a spirit of appreciation of 1984, and I, I feel that this is less risky than all those people who try to go through and um take all the um uh, the the non politically correct um, references out of certain books or anaesthetise them for modern readers, which seems to me, um, you know, the, the, the height of destruction of anyone's literary endeavours. Semi-serious question uh, to end on, John. Is there an argument that the works of some authors should perhaps be extended the kind of protection that we do to certain venerable buildings, just like seriously, this stuff matters. And, you know, Orwell, O'Neill, Dylan Thomas, you can fill in your own favourites. Do we want just any Yahoo publishing their works? I, I think you can make quite a serious case of that, yes. You can also make a case for authors, so we say, at the other end of the spectrum, being protected for different reasons. I mean, can you imagine, 70 years after Dan Brown's death, the awful <laughs> adaptations, new film versions that come sprawling out, is civilization really ready for this? Should we not protect ourselves against it? In fairness, they can all only be an improvement. John Everard and Carol Walker, thank you for joining us. Finally, on today's show, it is time for our letter from New York City. Here is our correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan. In 1964, two scientists, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias, made a breakthrough discovery. They were listening to the universe using the Holmdel horn antenna. Located in Holmdel Township in central New Jersey, the antenna is a massive sideways flume that tapers into a little hut where scientists can read its measurements of microwaves. The pair of scientists were testing a highly sensitive antenna and receiver system when they picked up on an omnidirectional hiss. The scientists tried and then rejected the hypothesis that the radio noise emanated from New York City. Then they inspected their massive horn to see if there was anything inside it interfering with its operation. The horn was in fact packed with bat and pigeon shit. But even once the scientists had scooped out the droppings, the noise remained. Eventually, Wilson and Penzias figured out the hissing was being caused by leftover heat from the Big Bang. It was the first time evidence of the Big Bang had been directly observed, and in 1978, Wilson and Penzias received the Nobel Prize for physics for their discovery. In 1984, the Holmdel Horn's manufacturer, AT&T Bell Laboratories was broken up because of an antitrust lawsuit. A series of transactions led to the Finnish phone company Nokia owning the part of the research complex that includes the antenna. In 2020, Nokia sold it to a former Bell Labs administrator and serial entrepreneur called Rakesh Antala. Antala proposed developing the site into a senior housing centre but there was concern that this might lead to the antenna being moved from its position on top of a hill, which is the highest point in Monmouth County, or even taken off the site altogether. And what could be more positively New Jersey than a place of cosmic significance being bought by a developer? 
who has succeeded in getting the town to study whether, you know, maybe some way they could build townhomes or something else here. An online petition was started to preserve the horn antenna in perpetuity and turn the area around it into a public park. It gained nearly 10,000 signatures from 49 states and 60 countries. And last week, Holmdale Town officials announced that the town will pay $5.5 million for 35 acres, including the ground the telescope sits on, leaving the rest for Antala to develop. The town wants to make its portion of the hill into a park, possibly including a visitor centre. There's no doubt that the Holmdale Horn is loved because of its scientific value. It was used to make a fundamental discovery about the universe, and it was made a National Historic Landmark in 1989 in recognition of this fact. But I'm convinced that a big part of the horn's appeal is that it looks cool, like a giant's ear trumpet. You should look up a picture of it the next chance you get. It has that quality shared by many large-scale mid-20th century scientific instruments, where they look like how a person in 1890 might have imagined stuff looking in the future. There was lots of this kind of stuff in the mid-20th century. Fields of enormous radars, space shuttles, massive telescopes. It doesn't feel to me like we have as much good-looking science hardware now. But then perhaps the problem has more to do with the people behind the hardware. Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias seemed like the kind of reserved gentleman scientists that were led to believe staffed places like Bell Laboratories in the middle of the past century. They probably operated the Holmdel horn, wearing tweed suits, taking care to roll up the trouser legs when they have to clean bat and pigeon shit out of it. Now the people associated with the exploration of outer space are the tech lords. Try to imagine Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos scooping animal droppings out of the engines of one of their rockets. It's difficult to picture, and even if you manage it, it's not very charming. I don't want a complete return to the 1960s, of course. There needs to be more diversity along every dimension in the scientific workforce. Every dimension except being cringe. Also, let's be honest, if you want to get a broader range of kids into science, a good place to start would be making the instruments look cooler. If that means commissioning Hollywood set designers to build unwieldy papier-mâché superstructures over the top of minimalist, largely digital scientific instruments, so be it. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan. And that's all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Carol Walker and John Everard. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Spain is the land of sun, sea, and sangria, and each visitor jets off to its sunny beaches and vibrant cities for a dose of that Spanish Buena Vida. Monocle's newest handbook to Spain is on shelves now, where we explore the best places to eat, shop, stay, and wander in this colorful country. Inside, 
we check in with the hoteliers offering luxury seaside stays and urban getaways, local creatives weaving the old with the new, and leading chefs plating up exciting new dishes. For those hoping to put down roots, this handbook also highlights the perfect neighborhoods for you to call home and gets suggestions from the entrepreneurs who have already taken the plunge. Head to monocle.com shop to order your copy of Spain, the Monocle Handbook, today. <laughs>